0: So, the difference between the person wearing a Guns N' Roses t shirt on a train and somebody wearing some sort of religious garb is that the person may be religiously devoted to Guns N' Roses. Who knows? Some people are. But if you look at the person in religious garb, you know, already willing to stand out in that way in a public setting in the modern world, you draw the conclusion that they live a different kind of life.
1: Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And
0: I'm your co-host, Cameron
1: McAllister. And today we're going to talk about subcultures, and in order to get that kicked off, we're going to throw it straight over to Cameron for his shocking revelation that he left Twitter ever so slightly before Elon Musk did uh, his takeover. So, yeah, we might weave that in there, too. But it might sound counterintuitive to start talking about Twitter when we're talking about subcultures, but I think Cameron can make that link for us. Hit it, Cameron.
0: Well, I'll try to make that link. I mean, if we define a subculture as a smaller group within the larger culture, right, some cultural subset, usually organized around some particular interest, you can give, you think, I think of recent modern examples like the mods and the rockers in Great Britain. That'll be new terminology to some of you listening here. Some of you will maybe have visions of people on motorcycles and in leather jackets and then others in kind of posh clothing with bell-bottoms. Or, on a darker note, skinheads. There's a sub- subculture right there. But, I mean, virtu- mo- there are so many different ways to, to have a subculture. But I left Twitter. The connection I'll draw here is I left Twitter because I found it to be increasingly insular. And one of the ways that it, that people would put it was that Twitter is not real life. And I remember coming across a very intelligent person, author, thinker saying, I have no idea what it means when people say Twitter isn't real life. Of course it is. What are you talking about? I don't know what that sentiment or that statement means. And it means, I think, that what's taking place on Twitter, Twitter is its own little ecosystem. And so tons of swirling inside jokes, lots of groupthink happening because groupthink is how you make this is that's how you engage and and if you want to get a little bit of popularity, if you want to be retweeted, you got to stock you got to talk about stuff that everybody else is. This is sometimes called the discourse. So you get sucked into those antics and when you're when you're in there, it's easy to not, I mean, you can't see the forest for the trees and it's easy to mistake that for reality, but it isn't. And all you need to do is step outside for a little bit and talk to people in your communities and in your churches. And You're going to find that the discourse is largely limited to Twitter. And it, it's also lit- limited to whatever little digital corner of Twitter that you happen to be inhabiting.
1: Yeah, and have so you ever I've, seen? Yeah. Have you ever seen that on like uh, news stories where they use quotes from Twitter? All and the then time, you, and then you look at the tweet, and it's like, okay, three thousand people tweeting about this. Right. Do you know what three thousand is as a percentage of the American population? I mean, right. It's yeah. So
0: microscopic. I rest my case.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, and I and I, there are and. I mean, one of the factors with Twitter is that generally speaking, a lot of the intellectuals tend to gravitate toward Twitter. So you'll get some of the more detailed and nerdy conversations going on there. And I'm not saying that there is no value to Twitter whatsoever. Of course, of course there can be, but I found it also to be a tremendous distraction because another reason, a good, I mean, one of the big reasons for making Twitter popular and interesting is the atmosphere of constant controversy that's on there and you want to stop and you want to observe and you want to see and you want to find out what everybody's arguing about today you'll even see tweets along the lines of okay what are we all up in arms about today why are we so mad today but (laughs) i don't want to i don't want to know why we're all so mad today because it's wasting time and wasting valuable mental mental energy and i really am so i get sucked into it and I'm so seducible there. So I don't, I don't want to be a part of that. And so that's, that's not necessarily directly related to a conversation about subcultures, but certainly Twitter can function like that in the sense that it gets very insular.
1: Well, so, but maybe I think this is, there is a link here. So let me see if I can, well, tell me what you think about this. It'd be helpful for all of us and those listening along to think through what subcultures are you a part of? And and maybe you could give us a your definition of subculture, Cameron, uh, because it's probably a far more – like, for example, so you, you said skinheads. That's a subculture. Yeah, well, so is the church. um, Or maybe you don't see it that way. I'm just kind of curious, how are we defining subcultures? Because we almost live in a culture that's entirely made of subcultures, so it's sort of an ambiguous thing to try to wrestle with.
0: Yeah, I think the most basic way of defining it would be a special interest group, basically a group of people mm-hmm. gathered around a specific point of interest. So that could be a spiritual topic, that could be music, that could be, for, you know, that could there are sports subcultures. So I do, I, I see it as a somewhat, yeah, basically a kind of spe- special interest group. That might sound a little bit bland, but I think that's basically, if you shake it down, that's about where you're going to end up.
1: Yeah, I like, um, I think Marilyn Robinson, I forget what essay she was writing in when she said that one of the unique features of American life is everybody can divide themselves into subcultures essentially in such a way that everyone always perceives themselves to be in the minority. Yeah, that's a shrewd observation. Yeah. So even if you say, you know, you look at, you know, election time coming up here and you'd say suburban uh, white women account for 20% of the electorate. Um, Mm -hmm. Well, that's 20%. That's a minority group. And in a lot of other circles, you would say, well, white women are not the minority. But depending on how you define the group, you can definitely see yourself as the minority. You just got to draw the lines in the right or wrong ways. And voila, there you are. And so that fundamentally, puts you in tension by saying i'm a minority opinion and so there's uh safety and value in the subculture when you find other people that you think are like you is it a i mean so there's the birds of the feather flock together kind of idea happen what's the attraction there uh think, or is that just it
0: no it's a sense of community i think and marilyn robinson is right america is such a melting pl- a melting pot in such an eclectic culture that you yeah often people do feel kind of lonely and alienated and if you can find a group of people who rally around the same cause the same music the same political aspirations then yeah there's some consolation there there's a sense of community there's a sense of solidarity it can be a way to shore up one's identity especially when when you're in high school and you're trying to figure out who you are subcultures can have a particular appeal for kids who are a little bit more on the fringes who feel like outsiders and that was me for a while because I was a foreign kid I was the I was the third culture kid who had moved when you know he was 14 years old from Europe and so I found subcultures appealing because I you know they gave me a sense of belonging, but they also helped make me, you know, they sort of helped to give me a sense of identity as well. At least I thought that's what they were doing. But I mean, a bigger issue here is also, and we'll get to this, that subcultures are completely dependent on the larger culture often as well.
1: (laughs) Well, so, but different subcultures have different degrees of buy-in. Uh, you know, the, the cost of joining the Ruritan club versus joining the gang is different. Um, you know, and what's expected of you, you know, for example, or, uh, that's, that's where it gets interesting to me to start thinking about the church as a subculture and like think about the, the cost of the buy-in seems pretty low historically for a lot of people. Um, what does it mean? Like, what does it cost me to be part of this? To some degree, the, the higher that cost the deeper the community within the circle is so think about let's say being Amish. Um, if you wanted to become Amish, there would be some significant lifestyle changes that would happen. But if you embraced all of those lifestyle changes, the community that you might find would be significantly deeper than what most people experience. So there is a certain degree of like definition and expectation that's necessary in order to form deep community seemingly.
0: Yeah. And, but part of the, the issue here that we may face when we, if we talk about the church right now is that so often we, you pointed out that there, there seems to be no real cost associated with becoming a Christian, unless we're talking about the, um, you know, joining the Amish or maybe, I mean, I think we could, we could talk about Catholicism here maybe to a certain Mm -hmm. extent and orthodoxy or think about now different religions like, I mean, a a Hasidic Jew or a devout Muslim. You see, there is a social cost associated with that if for no other reason than you, you have, you're very distinct. You look different from everybody around you. And part of the tension I think that we feel a lot of us as Christians here in America is that that distinctiveness doesn't really seem to be a part of our faith. But yeah. that's something's wrong with that, though, because yeah. if your faith is is requiring nothing change as far as your cultural engagement and comportment, we have a problem. Let's press into that a little
1: bit. Yeah. Well, okay. So let's let's talk about that though, because um, lots of people let's just go with appearance. Lots of people dress in a way to signify allegiance, fidelity, or appreciation for everything from sports teams to bands, to academic institutions. Um, and that's not, that's seen as a buy-in to a group or a, a fidelity, or you're a fan of, um, you don't have the same reaction sitting beside somebody on a train who is wearing a, Mets jersey as you do sitting beside somebody wearing a hijab. Right. What's the difference there?
0: Yeah. Well, the hijab signifies a, an, an entire way of life, I would say, mm-hmm. and in a way that some of your consumer habits don't. Now, probably a better definition, better basic definition, these are all very, very basic definitions that I'm offering here just to, just for the sake of practicality, but perhaps a better more practical definition of subculture would be a special interest a special interest group that has become more of a lifestyle.
1: Okay. So I like that more, yeah.
0: Yeah, because I don't I don't know that so you might you might find somebody who's a Mets fan, but that's just simply a hobby for them. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you might find, let's say, somebody who is a Braves fan. I live in Atlanta, who for whom the braves are dude constitute an entire way of life and it shapes all of their habits so this so this is more of a of a a lifestyle and it's not just the way they dress it's the way you know their their whole their habits and maybe even their devotion so that's more i want to say that that's closer to a subculture so the difference between the person wearing a guns and roses t-shirt on a train and somebody with you know wearing some sort of religious garb is that the person may be religiously devoted to guns and roses, who knows some people are, but if you look at the person in religious garb you know already willing to stand out in that way in a public setting in the modern world, you draw the conclusion that they they live a different kind of life, one that is circumscribed by a set of rituals we're all we all we're all ritualed creatures, but a set of rituals that will be largely foreign to modern ways of life. I mean think about a muslim they dress a certain way and it, i mean if if the depending on how you know if, if we're talking about a devout muslim they they dress very specifically, they wash a specific way, they pray a specific way, their their postures and their gestures are carefully everything is circumscribed. So that I think that's that's one of those distinctions where you're you know you look at somebody with just certain consumer habits. That's let's face it, you know, somebody wearing an Adidas t shirt doesn't necessarily signify you know religious devotion, mm-hmm. but ver- versus well, somebody, but th- yeah,
1: yeah, or somebody in uh, fatigues in the airport, so military apparel, right. um, yes, and, absolutely. Know, that's that's a big one too of like a public identification of of who we are. It's but it's interesting to me that a lot of these signifiers, some of the value of the subculture's identity is in the exclusivity of it. So for, and this is where the church gets a little weird. This is why I want to, why I wanted to talk to you about this is that evangelicalism is a subculture, but it's an intentionally porous one where it wants to add as many people to itself as possible, which gives it a weird perspective of whether or not it actually is a subculture In the same Mm -hmm. degree that Harvard University, if you see somebody wearing a Harvard t-shirt, they're wearing that signifying that they are affiliated with a school that not everybody gets into. And that's the point. Yes, Um, right. And so it's it's different for the church or it's different for any organization that is trying to add everybody to itself than it Mm -hmm. is for any other type of subculture. And so we intentionally are porous, meaning that we like the doors are open. And, and yeah, you do have some super impressive monasteries that have been running for hundreds of years in a closed, but that's non-porous. I mean, you're not influencing yes. anybody and they're not influencing you, but when you live in a a, I think discipleship is a subculture, but it's an intentionally outward facing one, it gets really rather confusing for a lot of Christians, I think.
0: I think that's a really good point and it's a subtle distinction. So generally speaking, I would, I I, I would agree, Nathan. The tighter the boundaries the more stable the the subculture is going to be
1: that's a great way to because put
0: that. yeah the boundaries are, are are being carefully policed and so you can give some some examples that are a little bit more negative or dark right if you want to join certain street gangs there are very you know usually the the price of entry involves bloodshed of of some kind or another okay that's not a good thing, but that's a powerful boundary policing mechanism. And that does foster a type of very dark community instability. But the same would also be true of elitist clubs or societies where there is, whether it's a high, high academic standard or a very high degree of piousness that's required for mm-hmm. entry. But you face a whole new tension when you're more inclusivist in your posture. And you, and part of your openness is a strategic maneuver. So let's say evangelicalism where you you want to influence the culture positively, right? And you want to engage the culture and so your your posture is one that's a little bit more open. But that's that's the problem right now with I think that's one of the major problems with evangelicalism in this cultural moment. Because that that model is becoming I don't think it's quite sustainable anymore.
1: Oh, say I've, more about that, because that's yes. could be taken as a rather re- revolutionary statement.
0: Right. So I think, well, I'm going to make a few big statements here, and then you can set me straight. But this I mean, again, a, yes, a, well, a gentle reminder that w- what Nathan and I are trying to do here is really, we were talking about this earlier, Nathan, is a bit pedagogical in nature. We want to stimulate thought. We don't want to draw conclusions for you. So please don't take Except this as... Except
1: don't join the skinheads. Let me do
0: not the join the skinheads. We will say that with just unqualified. <laughs> there are some perver. things. We will, yeah. Yeah. Don't join a gang. Don't join the skinheads. But what I, I mean, what I want to say here is, first of all, I think that the church in North America is not dying. I think cultural Christianity is dying. And that's a good thing. We've said that before on, on this podcast. And I think cultural Christianity, we had the luxury, I'm going to put it this way, even though cultural Christianity is a very bad thing. Why is it bad? Because it misleads people into thinking that idolatry, an idolatrous lifestyle, is actually Christian devotion. So it's very insidious in that sense, and it's, it, it manages to disguise that idolatry very effectively. So formally, in the United States, we had the luxury of cultural Christianity, in the sense that as long as your Christian convictions didn't conflict too much with American notions of freedom, prosperity, security, and success, you were okay. And you could do that. But now that we've hit a moment of profound cultural tension and really cultural crisis and meltdown, where there's just seething rage and anger all of this was was under the surface under the hood so to speak for a while but now it's all now it's all becoming very apparent now christianity is not viewed as it's not seen as I mean we've mentioned this before too it's not seen as neutral it's not seen as good it's seen as as bad by our cultural elites it's seen as a social ill
1: well hang on so, what, what, what let me yeah. so yeah but is it here's the question so you see somebody in a hijab, and you think that's a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You see somebody with a Christian t-shirt, and you don't think that's a lifestyle.
0: No, I, th- I would. S- I think you probably think it's a consumer choice.
1: Right. So the Christian t-shirt is in the same category as the Mets jersey.
0: It is. Yes. That's a and that's a very apt observation. It's in the same category as the Mets jersey or as the Guns N' Roses t-shirt.
1: And so, Alan yes. Noble would flesh that out for you in Disruptive Witness. But, I, but is it, so? What then does that do to the Christian concept of self? Of like, how do you invite somebody into something when you yourself aren't exactly sure what it is?
0: Well, you can't really see. That's why. That's why. Now that that luxury has gone away, which is a good thing, we have no choice but to be an alternative to the broader culture. So I'm saying Christianity in its popular instantiations in North America, I'm not saying it's always been idolatrous or or unfaithful, but I'm saying now it's it has it it should have been. I mean, we always need to be different, set apart. That doesn't necessarily mean we always have to dress differently, although I don't think actually it's necessarily what's it might be a good thing to dress a little bit differently, for instance. I well, mean, that's where yeah. That's what no. I mean, seriously. I mean, some of the head. I mean, whether whether we're talking about the the robes or some of the you know the attire worn by by clergy, or I mean, those. I'm just pointing out because a lot of us, especially those who grew up in evangelical circles, are so accustomed to kind of bracketing all of that or thinking that it's not that it's just necessarily bad. I'm saying no. It can serve a very definitive function. In one's witness. I mean, Ooh, yeah. more, so, more so than a Godbucks t shirt.
1: So here well, so here's the level of tension that might be exploding in people's minds. So we want to walk through this. Is there's a a very big difference between saying our culture is Christian. Come on, Cameron, you're a bad Puritan. Mm-hmm. America, the new Israel. Yep. Um, you know, there's that, I think that mindset is still alive and well.
0: We're talking about
1: Christianity as a subculture, not as the attempted dominant culture. Uh, And and so that might be theological Mm -hmm. on our part. It might be generational. Uh, It might just be chronological in the the time in which we find ourselves. But if you're looking at, and actually this probably does the best job of laying out potentially the difference of perspective that you and I have as far as like what animates us, Mm -hmm. because – as far as the conversation of whether or not the church is the dominant culture, that ship sailed a long time ago if it was ever really there in a deeply meaningful structural way. So uh, yep. a lot of people are still acting like we're fearful of losing something that's already gone. That's happening. You and I yes. are saying, no, the church is necessarily a sub and countercultural component of a broader culture and to the degree to which it can influence that's a great – But you and I are more afraid of the subculture losing its definition than we are of the broader culture losing its Christian label. The influence.
0: Yeah. Yes, because the power of—we just never can afford to underestimate the power of cultural seduction. In every single nation, in every place in history, this is a perennial temptation for God's people because we're in the world but not of the world— And we live, we navigate that space with a great deal of tension. I think part of the basic quiddity, the feeling, the the essence of what it means to experience the Christian life here on earth is tension. You know, you walk as a resident alien, you walk as a citizen of heaven now, but you're still inhabiting a temporal realm and you have eternity in your heart. That's tremendous tension. and the temptation is always basically to find some to either capitulate to the culture and or or and there are ways to justify it in the name of influence and the in the name of engagement to kind of let go of that tension and be all in but the problem now is though is Christianity is whatever its role was in the past in the United States, whatever the status of the church in the past right now that the, <laughs> The influence, the estimation of the church, the overall feeling is is turning quite negative. And oh, the influence and if you're unsure that,
1: of this, just give it 10 years.
0: Absolutely. So, I mean, nobody—I I don't think that's a controversial statement. Nobody's disputing that Christ, the influence of the church is waning profoundly. But also—so in that transition, right there, it's not really— we, we're we not going to have the choice of whether we can, you know, we're going to have to be an alternative. We're going to have to be, we will have to be okay being different. Some people would say we have to be okay yeah. being the bad guy, but, but we it, have but, to be all right with, we have to embrace our distinctiveness. We should have been doing this from the start because in the effort to, to, to build bridges sometimes and in de-emphasizing that, we've, it's come at the cost of our honesty and it's kind of come at the cost of our convictions in the past. And I do think that this has been done with the best intentions in mind many times, but it was a misguided effort. We have to be okay being at, at odds with the American view of freedom, for instance, with the American view of consumerism and complete radical individualism. We have to be okay with that. And for a long time, it's been possible to sort of just leave that unaddressed and by the way when i say individualism that has ramification i mean that all the outworkings of that you can think of that in the sexual sphere of of the various ways in which we're supposed to express our identities and the various radical experiments with all of that before all of that became so full-blown it was possible to sort of operate in a way where we weren't in direct conflict or at least we weren't we weren't you know Causing too much trouble, but now that that's unavoidable, if you're going to hold fast to to your Christian convictions, yeah, that old model of engagement won't work.
1: Well, let's let me loop back around here and ask you about because Jesus's preaching was very high stakes. Think Luke 14, counting the cost. If yes, anyone wants absolutely. to save his life, he must lose it pick up your cross and follow, you know, that kind of, that whole. Hate your
0: mother, father, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, yeah, brother I and mean, sister, cousin. Totally everybody.
1: unsparing, willing yeah. to die. Um, yep. that, go sell
0: everything you have, and then you'll have treasure in heaven.
1: <laughs> Shall he go on, ladies and gentlemen? Yeah. Uh, I'm just saying, it's it, it doesn't feel like that's what we're usually talking about when we present the gospel anymore.
0: No, the way I point that, so those passages, the so-called hard sayings, which always makes me chuckle. I but I always point that out. I say, man, Jesus is really bad at PR. Guys, have you ever noticed that?
1: Or Paul, all, Second Corinthians chapter eleven, where he goes through the list of shipwrecked and being beaten to nearly death. I mean, it just goes yeah. on and on and on. And like, hey, who else? Here's wants my to resume. Do this? Yeah. yeah,
0: here's my <laughs> resume of all the horrendous things that have happened to me, and here are the scars to prove it. No, I mean it's almost as though Jesus is actively, it's like he's at pains to talk people out of following him. But it's also, it's worth pointing out that a lot of those, the folks who are following. So Jesus has this huge following. He's because of the electrifying message that he's giving, but also because, you know, he turned water into wine and he's feeding (laughs) 5,000 people. I mean, if you give people, if you turn water to wine, you're gonna have a following. I mean, people are gonna want you to do TED talks and and just you know just sort of <laughs> rocket you to the Your top. YouTube of channel is
1: gonna be stellar.
0: Well, and then there's that really haunting verse in John's Gospel right after the the cleansing of the temple. I believe it is where Jesus says, you know, many. It says essentially many people were following him, but for his part, he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in the heart of man. Mm. So Jesus is very concerned about the motivations behind your devotion to him, right? And again, he could—now, cultural influence and all of that and rulership, he could have had that in droves. And that's, of course, exactly what his disciples are expecting of him, all the people Mm -hmm. following him. And then it takes him saying some of the most—I mean, probably the most extreme example of him talking people out of stuff is when he (laughs) says— You have to eat my body and drink my blood. He says this to a bunch of Jewish people, and all sorts of people leave and you know there's that who can abide this? this is a hard you know this is a hard saying mm. who can abide that and then Jesus says, of course to his disciples are you going are you essentially going to desert me as well and then of course, there's the famous it's Peter, you know lord to whom shall to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life but yeah, you have to be but to 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 say that to come to that place boy, you have to do away with those cultural notions of success. And Come die with me. Yeah, There's I mean, a- we're, we are talking about the dynamics of the kingdom of God here. And that, again, none of this is new. This is Christianity 101, but it's going to feel radical to us in North America because we have, we've had the luxury of not having to think like this for a so while. Else. And so that's what, what I the- think people are lamenting.
1: So, yeah, so there, there's—all right, we need to buckle down and be clear about what it is and what we're not as Christians. There's that. Then there's the invitation to a lifestyle that is the gospel. Um, not, and obviously, there are ideas that go along with that. But I'm, I'm trying to work back around to the subcultural idea of it is a, it is an open subculture, but it has standards. And so I kind of, you know, I envision, I think I've often talked about the difference between a standing embrace and a chasing embrace. Um, a chasing <laughs> embrace is like where Jesus sticks his arms out and then, you know, they turn around because it's a hard teaching. He says, whoa, 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 no, guys, no, we're going to lower the standard, come back. Like, sorry, I lost you guys. I'm going to run out and hug you. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that's, that's exactly not what Jesus did on that. The flip side mm-hmm. is a standing embrace where Jesus kind of draws a line in the sand and says, here I am. But he stands on that line with his arms open and says, mm-hmm. you are welcome here, but you do cross into a standard way of life. Um, so in my mind, that distinction between the chasing embrace and the standing embrace is a helpful visual picture for me of how the boundary of the church is drawn, where we say, yes, there are distinctives here, um, and they go beyond sexual ethics. Uh, I think that has kind of captivated the imagination of the conversation, but there's a lot more in addition to that. Um, like you said, materialism and all sorts of other relational curiosities there. Um, but that is the, the impossibility of standing on the border of the boundary of the church in a posture of a open armed standing embrace is so difficult that you will need the power of God in order to do that. Well, and so I think all of this would seem like a totally ridiculous, undoable project if it were not fueled and funded by the Lord Himself, whose idea this was in the first place. So I I'm not disheartened by this at all. I think mm-hmm. the teachings of Jesus are just like continuously stepping on a rake that jumps up and slaps you, and you're like, oh, I kind of knew that was there. Um, mm-hmm. I think let that be a challenge of like, where are the things that I have to buckle down on my distinctiveness on the rigidity of the convictions that i hold but where do i also have to buckle down on the tone of christ and the willingness to sacrifice himself on behalf of the others so that others could join and come into it and so that's that is a countercultural counterintuitive definitely jesus style posture to put ourselves in as we think about what it means for us to be christians and be part of a subculture
0: i mean yeah to speak in christian terms here surrender to christ and fall in love with him and all and everything else follows from that i mean that really is that's first priority everything else your habits your sexual ethics and many finances of them, I mean, if you finance if you're wa- and you're if you're walking away or converting you're walking away from a previous you know all sorts of deeply ingrained habits it doesn't i mean this it will take time but surrender to christ and love him with all that you are and then everything else follows but on a broader note, and again, in very practical terms, you're going to have to be comfortable saying, I am this and I am not this. It's wanting it both ways that has been possible in the past in American life, because you could you soft pedal on certain issues in the past, but we've moved away from all of that because now that Christianity is viewed in some ways, Christians are viewed as social pariahs and on, on many of the issues if you hold to the orthodox convictions of the faith. Now that that's the case, the conversation has shifted away from, you know, tell me more about your beliefs and why you believe what you believe, but it it really is moving toward who are you and what do you do? And we have to be able to, we got to be ready and willing and able to say, I am this, I do this, I am not this, I will not do that and live with the and live with those consequences. That's something, let's think about that. And I'm, I just submit that for you to, I just, I want you to mull that over. Think about it, pray about it. And again, if, I mean, Nathan and I have said a lot on here, <laughs> a lot of really provocative, thought-provoking stuff. Mull it over and think about it. Again, we're not here on Thinking Out Loud to draw any conclusions for you. You don't need that. We're not here to insult your intelligence you're smart but think these matters through if you would we would you know and pray pray about them but the face the the dynamics the social dynamics in this culture are changing rapidly and as christians we need to be prayerfully considering our posture and how we model the way of christ and it's going to make us it's it's we're going to stand out more and more so thank you for listening you have been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's t-o-l-together.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.